You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. We're going to be talking about the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. And Paul's going to lay this out in Philippians 3, verses 1 through 9. He begins in verses 1 through 3. My brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. So Paul was just talking last uh, time we looked at the book of Philippians about this idea of spiritual growth. And now he wants to sort of take a U-turn and talk a little bit about this dangerous thing called legalism. And it's something that he writes to the Philippians and other churches very often, as we'll see. He says in verse 2, watch out for the dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the true circumcision, we who serve God by the Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus. So he calls out these people whom he says are evildoers. And in the context, what we see is that there are these group of men who are of Jewish descent, and For the most part, they agree with Paul that it's about faith in Jesus, but they also believe that people need to take on the burden of the Old Testament law in addition to placing their faith in Christ. And so these evildoers, as Paul calls them, would go from city to city and try to undo the work that Paul the apostle did whenever he planted a church by sowing this legalistic point of view. And this group of false teachers closely followed Paul throughout his career. This was a pattern that we see mimicked throughout the book of Acts, but also in his letters. You know, Paul was so adamant against this type of teaching of legalism That he says in Galatians 1 verse 8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that was preached to you, let that person be accursed. To put it in layman's terms, if anybody shares a message other than the one that I shared with you, which is about God's free forgiveness, may God damn that person. So pretty strong language. And it's interesting because in our day, A lot of Christian preachers have adopted this law-based approach to Christianity, saying that people need to follow the law, they need to do good things in order to supplement their faith in Jesus. And Paul was upset about this, as we'll see. He calls them dogs, which to us, we think of dogs. We live in a dog culture. And we're like, oh, that sounds cute. It's wonderful that he's calling them dogs. But actually, in the ancient world and in most developing places throughout the world, dogs are scavengers. They're mangy. They carry disease. They're a nuisance. And so, in the ancient world, this was a pejorative term when you called somebody a dog. In fact, they actually called Gentiles, non-Jewish people, dogs. And so Paul is sort of turning the tables on these Jewish law teachers and saying, 
These people are like dogs because they constantly are nipping at my heels, spreading this dangerous false teaching like an illness. He also says that they are mutilators of the flesh. One thing that we read about is that they actually went around teaching that if you want to be truly spiritual, you should place your faith in Jesus, but you also need to take the extra step of getting circumcised. And that actually had some significance to it because whenever you got circumcised, that symbolically meant that you were taking on the full burden of the Old Testament law, that you were going to be obedient and faithful to it. So Paul actually uses a play on words here. Circumcision in the Greek is the word peritome. And it comes from two different words, peri meaning around, where we get the word perimeter from, and toma, meaning to cut. And so you cut around when you get circumcised. But he calls these people mutilators of the flesh. And he uses the word katatome, cut, tome, and kata, meaning through. Yeah. And so he calls them mutilators. In fact, in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 12, he's facing a similar situation with the Galatians. He says, I wish that those who are troubling you would even go as far as to emasculate themselves. If they're so zealous about the cir- this circumcision and taking on the law, why don't they go all the way and just lop it off? That's what he's saying. So Paul's using some pretty charged language here, right? Some pretty graphic language to express his anger toward these these people who are law preachers. So why did Paul use such harsh language? Well, as it turns out, he was following Jesus' pattern. Of all the people that Jesus got angry at, you would think that he would take aim at the sinners, the people who had a lot of problems, the prostitutes, the, the thieves. But actually, he, he took aim at the religious leaders. He, he reserved his harshest words for the religious people of his day. Look at what he says in Matthew 23. He calls the religious leaders of his day fools, blind men. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them blind guides. You know, imagine, just to put it in our terms, right? Imagine you decide you're going to pay to go get to, to skydive, right? And so you're going through the training. A lot of times there's some training to tell you what you're going to go through, what all the pieces of equipment are, what you need to do. I've never done it before, but I can imagine there's some instruction that leads up to jumping out of a plane at, I don't know, 10,000 feet, Right? Now imagine you walked up to one of your instructors and you're like, hey, what, what is this harness supposed to do here? And he's like, I've never seen that before. I don't know. <laughs> that would be worrisome, wouldn't it? And so in the same way, Jesus is calling out the religious leaders of his day and he's saying, you guys are like blind guides. You claim to know the way to salvation, but instead you're leading people astray. You don't know yourselves. He calls them whitewashed tombs. 
in the Jewish religion, if you touch anything that is dead, a body or an animal's body, that would render you ritually unclean. So what he's saying is, you're like a whitewashed tomb. On the outside, you look beautiful. You're ornate and beautiful. But inside, you're filled with death and uncleanliness. He says, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? I mean, Jesus just was going after the religious leaders of his day. And why? It's because he was trying to go after them because he realized this was going to lead them astray. So what should we learn from all of this? I think, first of all, we need to teach what the Bible teaches, but more importantly, we need to emphasize what the Bible emphasizes. And how can you tell what the Bible emphasizes? If the Bible repeats it often, that is a point of emphasis, as well as the kind of language that the authors use to express their disdain or concern for a particular false teaching. And what Jesus and Paul are talking about here happens to check both of those boxes. The thing that they're so concerned about is something that is mentioned often throughout the Bible, and it is emphasized by using this kind of language. And really what they're confronting is this thing called legalism. The Oxford Dictionary defines this as dependence on moral law rather than on personal faith. I think that's a pretty good definition. It's a dependence on trying to do good things by following a certain set of rules rather than on personal faith. You know, when we talk about legalism, one of the reasons why God is so opposed to legalism is that it invalidates Jesus' sacrificial death. You know, when we talk about Jesus' death on the cross. The significance of that is that God saw that we are alienated from Him, that we've done things that are wrong, and we need forgiveness in order to enter back into a relationship with Him. And so He sent His own Son, Jesus, to come and die a sacrificial death so that we could freely enter into a relationship with God through Him. And yet, what does it mean when we say, you know, it's, it's about Jesus, but it's also about doing good things. You know, place your faith in Jesus, that'll save you, but you also need to supplement that by good works. It's an invalidation of Jesus' death. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 21. He says, I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness could come through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Read it and weep. What is he saying there? He's saying, if you could earn your way to God, or if you could supplement what Jesus did on the cross, then what was really the point of Jesus' death? Why did he have to go through all of that trouble if you could simply earn your way to God by being good? And the answer is you cannot be good enough. You can't do good things to nullify your guilt. I like to think of it this way. I, I, I learned this as a very young Christian, but it's always stuck with me. 
It's this formula. Grace plus works equals works. You know, when we talk about grace, we're talking about the unmerited gift of God. And that was expressed to the maximal degree through Jesus. He gave us this incredible gift of forgiveness and reconciliation through Jesus. And so anytime we try to blend in some works or we try to add some works to God's grace, it turns His grace into works. Let me try to illustrate this. Imagine you go to your parents' house one day and your parents are like, hey, why don't you walk into the garage? And you walk in there and you see this. A Ferrari 488 Spider. 2020 model. And you're like, what's that doing in your garage? And they're like, surprise. I know that you're going to be graduating from college here and decided to buy you a gift. You know, the Honda Civic that we bought you five years ago, the 2007, it served its purpose, but we wanted to upgrade your car. And you're like, no way. And they're like, there's three things you need to know. Okay, number one, we love you. Me and your mom, we love you. And this is a gift from us to you. Number two, be careful with this thing. It's got over 700 horsepower, and it goes zero to 60 in 2.9 seconds. Number three, we will be expecting a $4,000 monthly payment for seven years at the first of the month, every month. Okay, you know, whatever your parents said to you before they said you owe $4,000 a month at the first of the month, every single month for seven years, makes, it makes no sense. It's completely invalidated at that point, right? Because it's not a gift at that point. You know, when somebody expects for you to pay for something that they gave you, they could be helping you out, but in order for it to be a gift, it needs to be free. And so the Bible says that it declares good news about Jesus, that God is offering forgiveness free of charge. But then when we sprinkle in a little bit of works in there, that really changes things, doesn't it? It changes the whole proposition of what God is offering to us. It's not good, it's not a good news anymore. There's this obligation. And so, really, when we talk about God's grace, it's completely free. And one of the worries I think that people have, especially some of these so-called Christian preachers have with this idea of grace, is that if we just tell people that they're going to be forgiven for all that they've ever done, past, present, and future, then isn't that really going to give them a license to go and sin it up? Well, actually, if you understand what God has forgiven you of, what he has done, then out of gratitude, you find yourself living in obedience to God, not because of compulsion, but out of love. Also, legalism creates a fearful expectation of God's judgment. We talked about this a few weeks ago. And again, you know, you see these Christian preachers who capitalize on this. They like to, to use the fear threat motive. If you don't do these things, God is going to get you. And they want to try to, to scare you into compliance. 
And yet there's one big problem with that, is that Scripture says that we shouldn't be afraid. As we talked about a few weeks ago, God says that perfect love casts out fear. Anyone who's still afraid has not been made complete in love. You know, true obedience in love looks totally different than obedience that comes about from fear. You know, imagine my wife says, hey, honey, which my wife never calls me honey, but she's, she's like, hey, can you mow the lawn? And you're like, yeah, sure, you know, I'll, I'll get to that. And I look at her, she's sitting at the kitchen table, and I'm, I see that there's a, a 357 Magnum sitting there on the table. And I'm like, what's that for? And she's like, in case you decide not to do it. I mean, that sort of changes the, the tone of the request, doesn't it, right? I mean, if she asked me and said, hey, could you do this? I would do it because I love her and I, I want to be considerate of her and help her out. But when I see a gun there, I'm a little scared. <laughs> and so you see, when, when God adds in, yeah, and you need to do good things otherwise, that changes the whole tone of the relationship, doesn't it? You know, instead of going to God freely, knowing that he has forgiven you, that you can come to him with your problems, knowing that he's going to accept you because of his grace, that looks totally different when you start to mix in legalism where now you're afraid to come into his presence because you don't know if he's going to accept you. You don't know whether he's going to judge you or punish you for the things you've done wrong. Also, it robs us of our freedom in Christ and leaves non-Christian people with the wrong impression about God. One of the things that the Bible teaches is that there's incredible freedom that comes from Christ. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 1. He says, it's for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, stand firm and do not let yourself be burdened again by this yoke of slavery, which he's talking about the Old Testament law. And yet I think when a lot of non-Christian people in our culture look at Christianity, they think the opposite of freedom, right? They think of restrictions. They think of a list of rules that you need to follow. You need to be a good person. It's all about gritting your teeth and obeying. And yet, one of the things we see is that God gives us incredible freedom. Again, I think some of these so-called Christian preachers who like to bring in the fear threat motive, you know, in their mind, what they're seeing is destroyed lives due to sin. For example, maybe a pastor of a church sees how alcoholism has damaged many families throughout the years in his church. And so, the logic in his mind or her mind is alcoholism destroys families. And people who drink alcohol can get hooked to alcohol, alcohol or become alcoholics. Therefore, we should prohibit drinking alcohol to avoid people becoming alcoholics. All of that makes sense, right? And yet the problem is Again, the Bible never says that you should, you should never drink alcohol. In fact, Jesus drank alcohol. Now, to some of you, that may not be a big deal. 
And to others of you, that's a huge deal. You're like, thank God. Like, so if I become a Christian or investigate spiritual things and decide to invite Jesus into my life eventually, then I'm going to have to give up all these things that I really like to do? You know, the problem with this thinking is that it's a slippery slope, right? Where the logic is what we need to do is we need to tell people to stay away from certain things because it could lead to further bad things. But what ends up happening over time is as we add more and more and more stuff onto what the Bible says, we slowly choke out the freedom that we have in Christ. And we have tremendous freedom in Christ. God says the kind of freedom we can enjoy is the freedom from trying to justify our existence by the things that we do. We have freedom to no longer have to try to create a sense of identity because God gives us a sense of identity that's secure. We're free to live our lives without fear of death because God has assured us that we will live eternally with him if we believe in Christ. And so there's tremendous freedom that we can experience that ends up becoming overshadowed by these extra traditions and and rules that you see a lot of Christians add on to the Bible that's not even there. Also, legalism views the things of God as burdensome and leads many to do just the bare minimum. Now, that's a little counterintuitive. When you see a follower of Christ who doesn't really do anything, the first thought that comes into your mind isn't legalism. And yet, a lot of times, the reason you'll see that Christians lack motivation is because they're suffering under this legalistic mentality. They feel like the things of God are tremendously burdensome. They feel burnt out. And they're just sort of phoning it in because they want to just do what they feel like they're obligated to do, but they're not really doing it from the heart because they're not motivated by God's grace. They're just going through the motions. And I can, I can tell when this is happening to me. This, this doesn't just happen to young believers in Christ. This is something that we all suffer from, even mature believers in Christ. I notice this in my own life when I go to like maybe a fellowship gathering with people from my home church and the little things that people do start to irritate me. I'm like, why, why is she always talking so loud? I mean, she's literally standing two feet away from him. Why is she shouting? Or, you know, I'm sitting there and one of the brothers will take his shoes off and I'm like, why does he do that? His feet are so smelly, they smell like an abandoned Asian market after an apocalypse. (laughs) Why is he doing that? You know, a lot of times I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I just, I'm just tired, I don't know why I'm even here, and I start imagining things that I'd rather be doing in that moment than being there with people. Those are sure signs that you're falling into a legalistic mentality because instead of viewing this time of fellowship with your friends as a tremendous privilege, as something to be grateful for, you view it as a nuisance and an obligation. 
That's where you see the contrast between the grace view of living for God and the one that is motivated by legalism. And also it's focused on minutia and leads to judgmental picking. You know, when you're caught up in this legalistic mentality, what you're trying to do is you're trying to justify yourself. And you do this by looking at how great you are and looking down at other people and seeing how bad they are. And so you're constantly comparing yourself to other people and thinking, I'm better than these people and these people are better than me and I need to attain to where they are. And so we're constantly putting people down in our minds, nitpicking them, because as we do that, we feel better about ourselves. And yet we would never have the guts to compare ourselves to the morally perfect God of the universe. And so we tend to look at the people who are worse off than us. You know, you'll see this a lot of times in churches where people will get all up in arms about an off-color joke or somebody slipping up and cussing, and yet they won't see that they have a big problem in their lives, that they are rank materialists and they don't care about the poor at all, and yet they, they don't see that there's a problem there. You know, Jesus called out the religious leaders of his day for the same thing. He says, you guys, you guys are so fastidious in trying to follow the Old Testament law that when God says you need to, to give 10% of all that you have, you go to your herb plants, your herb box, and you count off all the leaves and you're like, hmm, 10% of that, and you give that away. And Jesus is like, there's no problem with that. The only problem I have is that you are neglecting the weightier portions of the law, namely justice and mercy. And so what ends up happening is this focus on minutia becomes sort of a red herring, right? It, it, it evades the bigger problem that we have in our lives and it focuses on other people's little problems. And so a lot of times you'll come into an environment, a church, where people are just constantly picking at each other for the littlest things. And it's because of legalism. And finally, it breeds hypocrisy and dishonesty. A lot of times people in these churches have problems that are weighty, struggles that burden them, and yet they wouldn't dare to talk to a fellow Christian about that because they're afraid that they're going to get judged for it. In fact, they would rather tell people at work or go and get a counselor who's a secular counselor to talk about their problems rather than talk to somebody in their church. And so what you'll oftentimes see in these environments is that people kind of keep each other at arm's length because there's fear that I'm going to get judged if I open up about my problems. Whereas in a grace-filled community, people are open, they're vulnerable. Because they know that if they open up about their issues, first of all, they have security in the way that God views them, so they don't worry about what people are going to think. But also, they trust that the people around them who are striving toward God's grace are going to be willing to help them out. You know, one thought is maybe Paul was critical of the law approach because, you know, maybe he couldn't cut it. After all, Paul was a Jewish man, grew up that way. Maybe he just, he was a dropout, right? 
Well, Paul says in verses 3 through 6, we put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, and as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So Paul lays out his resume and says, if you want to talk about having confidence in the flesh, which what he means is confidence in yourself, I have all the more reason to be confident compared to most people. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Again, this is important because this meant that Paul was born into the family of God. And this goes all the way back to the Old Testament where God would set up a covenant or an agreement with the nation of Israel at different points throughout its history. And so very, very early on, God set up a covenant with Noah and he said, I'm going to give you a sign. It's going to be a rainbow. Every time you see this rainbow, you're going to know that I'm not going to destroy the earth like I did this time. And so God made an agreement with Noah and gave a sign. And then he goes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless all of your descendants, all of the peoples of the earth through your descendants. And the sign for you is going to be circumcision. And I'm sure Abraham was like, wait a second, didn't Noah get the rainbow? I mean, can we do like a total lunar eclipse or like, you know, a secret handshake or something like that? And God gave that sign and said, listen, I want you to circumcise all of your people, and that is a sign that they are a people of this covenant of blessing that I'm going to give. And it's a little confusing why God chose circumcision. I think one thought is that, you know, God wanted his people, even in their most intimate moments, to look down and be like, I'm one of God's chosen people. Now, Paul says, you know, I guess you might ask, what good is circumcision? Paul answers that. He says, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been uh, entrusted with the very words of God. Theirs is the adoptions of sonship, and theirs is the divine glory, the covenants and the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. And so, you know, when you think about it, circumcision was a sign that you are part of God's chosen people. And it was very important. You know, one, one parallel here is you might say, well, I grew up in a Christian home and my parents had me baptized. You know, you see a lot of people today who say that. And yet, one of the things that we would say is, in response would be, so you're telling me that because of the family that you were born into, that makes you a Christian? And you follow everything that your family says and thinks and does? What about this? Paul says, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. And so he says, I am born into this incredible nation that's filled with God's blessing. And this was significant because the first king of Israel came from the tribe of Benjamin, King Saul. And so Paul knew his national lineage, 
at a time when a lot of people had lost track of that because they were exiled in Babylon for many years. And so I guess the parallel for us today would be, well, I grew up in a Christian country. You know, one version of this is obviously the most extreme, which is, you know, America is God's country, and we are God's chosen people. And the founding fathers, they were godly men. And yet, if you do a little bit of research, you realize that's not true. (laughs) Thomas Jefferson was a deist. He didn't believe that God was personal. In fact, he didn't believe in miracles at all. He went through the entire Bible and clipped out all the miracles of the Bible and called it the Jeffersonian Bible. Think about Benjamin Franklin, the guy who looks like Danny DeVito on your $100 bill. This guy was so immoral that he was part of a group of people called the Libertine Men who would have rampant sex with elderly women, young women, and everybody in between. And so I guess there were some people, some founding fathers who were probably Christians. At least they were open to Christianity and spiritual things. But I would not say that these men were Christian believers who instilled Christian values into our country. But I think most of the time when people say this, what they mean is that when you look at the majority of people in our country, many of those people affiliate themselves with Christianity. And what I would say to that is, well, so if I lived in Pakistan, does that mean that I should be a Muslim? If I went to India, does that mean that I should be a Hindu? I mean... Truth is truth, no matter where you go, no matter what country you're from or what time you live in. And so it doesn't matter what country you grew up in, that does not determine what is true. A Hebrew of Hebrews, a lot of commentators think that this means that Paul was able to speak Hebrew at a time when Hebrew was actually a dead language. And so... Paul was trained under this famous rabbi named Gamaliel. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, this would be equivalent to him getting like a PhD at Harvard. And so Paul was a learned person, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And really, the only kind of people who would learn Hebrew were the rabbis who were trained. And so, again, for our day, this might be something like I attended a Christian school growing up. Well, good for you. But that doesn't make you a Christian. He says, in regard to the law of Pharisee, the Pharisees were a fraternity of religious men who were like kind of the leaders of their day, 6,000 men. And these men tried to follow all 613 laws in the Old Testament. In fact, they created entire volumes that were case law to determine what to do in particular situations when trying to follow the Old Testament law. The Mishnah actually said that if anyone were to be accepted into heaven based on their good works, most likely one of them would be a Pharisee. Paul was part of this group of men. And so he says, in regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. And again, to translate this in our day, This would be something like a person saying, I'm a good person. 
And my question would be, a good person compared to who? Compared to like Jeffrey Dahmer? Compared to like R. Kelly? Good job. You think God should accept you because of that? You see, God holds a standard that is something that we cannot attain. He holds the standard up here, which is perfection, because he bases his standard on his own personal character. And so to say to God, I'm a good person, is offensive because he's morally perfect. As for zeal, a persecutor of the church, Paul, before he met Christ, actually was zealously pursuing Christians throwing them in prison, which then resulted in in many of them dying. He says, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. You know, when we think about righteousness, we often think of self-righteousness, which is a bad connotation. But actually, the word righteousness simply means having a right standing. And so according to the Bible, you can try it one of two ways. You can try to have a right standing before God by trying to do really good things, or you can have a right standing that God gives to you through Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. Warren Wearsby says, like most religious people today, Paul had enough morality to keep him out of trouble, but not enough righteousness to get him into heaven. Ironically, the thing that was holding him back before he knew Christ from coming, coming into God's favor having righteousness, was trying to be really good. And some of you might be doing the same thing. You're trying so hard to be good enough for God, and yet that's the very thing that's holding you back from having a relationship with God. He says in verse 7 and 8, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them all garbage. So he gives this profit loss statement, and he says, all of these things that my contemporaries considered as being of great worth, education, spiritual pedigree, being born into the right family, All of that I consider as garbage, as rubbish. And the commentators and biblical translators who translated this this word garbage were a little too squeamish. He talks about how um, it's garbage, and he uses this word skubalon. This word, as we'll see here, oh gosh, sorry. Skubalon, according to J.I. Packer, says, nastiness and decay are the constant elements of its meaning and its coarse, ugly, violent word implying worthlessness, uselessness, and repulsiveness. This is like something you would never say in public. William Arndt, in the Theological Dictionary of New Testament, says this, God who graciously bestows wonderful things from the world beyond as opposed to the finery of this world, which in contrast is shit. Skubalon. (laughs) That's that word right there. So he's saying this stuff is, it's crap. It's nothing. It's the off-scouring on the road 
from animals. Now let's go back to this earlier point that I just skipped over. And he says, the reason why that's all crap is this, because of the surpassing greatness and value of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. Now when we talk about knowing things, it's a little confusing because there are two different types of knowing, right? There's knowing about and knowing personally. So as you can see, this guy, Joaquin Phoenix, I know some things about him, right? Joaquin Phoenix, he was a vegan from age three. When he was four years old, he changed his name to Leaf for a decade because people kept mispronouncing his name, Joaquin. And he decided to depart from his acting career for some time because he wanted to pursue rapping. So I know a bunch of different things about Joaquin Phoenix, but I can't say that I personally know Joaquin Phoenix, right? And in the same way, you may know a lot of facts about Jesus and his life and the things that he's done. You might have even memorized some of the things that he said growing up, and yet you don't know him personally. And because that requires turning to him in faith and placing your trust in what he did on the cross, Okay, last two verses. He says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And so he says, there are two ways to obtain this right standing before God. There's plan A, which is trying to work for God and to earn his approval through legalistic rule following, or it's simply on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible says that God loves you, but you're alienated from him because of the things that you've done that offend him. But he's gone to this incredible extent to reach out to you, to show you mercy by sending his son Jesus to come and die so that you can be reconciled with him and to have this right standing that's, that's free by simply placing your faith in what Jesus did. So let's draw some conclusions. First of all, Paul had a great upbringing, a great heritage, a good education, and he did a lot of good works throughout his life, and yet it wasn't good enough. All of this striving that you may be doing to try to earn God's approval, hoping that he will accept you because you're good enough. Let me tell you the bad news. You're never going to measure up to his standard. It's never going to be good enough. All the good things that you ever do in your life are never going to wipe out the guilt that you have before God. And the question I want to pose to you is, are you banking your entire, your entire eternity on being good enough? Again, God says that there's an alternative. Tonight, you can turn to him as we spend some time talking to God and invite him into your life and ask for that forgiveness. This could be a life-changing opportunity for you tonight. And it's not something you have to do publicly. It's something you can do in your heart as you talk quietly to God. 
And finally, if you're trapped in a legalistic mindset, you can ask God to liberate you from it. God wants to free you from this legalistic way of thinking that enslaves us. And really the starting point is to have an interaction with God. Admit to him that you have been coming to him in this way and that's the starting point for you experiencing true liberation. Okay, that's Philippians 3. Yeah, this legalism is an ever-present danger, Lord, not only in our lives but also in our community. I pray that you can help us to combat this continually. We pray that we would never suffer the fate of becoming a uh, legalistic uh, church where the fear threat motive is thrown around to try to bring about compliance. I pray that we can continue to be throughout the years and the, the following decades a church that is strong in the grace of God. And I pray too for those of us who may feel you nudging us to turn to Jesus and to uh, receive this incredible grace that you have given us. I pray that in this moment they would just turn to you and uh, ask for his death to apply to their lives. And uh, we're grateful that you offer that to us through Jesus. And um, I pray too that we can just have a great night hanging out with one another here. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.